there's going to be a gazillion books written on either side, you know, about why Trump's bad or why Trump's good and who, who should win and who lose. But who's going to like stand firmly in the middle and take arrows from both sides and be able to say, okay, because if we don't, we're not going to move forward. This was this wasn't just a passion project. This was a mission. This is Jeff Bastian, and you're listening to Ignited with Meaning. The voice you just heard was today's guest, Kevin Wilhelm. Kevin has written a number of books on sustainable business, but his most recent book that we'll be talking about today, How to Talk to the Other Side, is different. It gets at one of his core passions to connect with people, regardless of their politics, and through that develop win-win solutions that neither of them would have come up with on their own. And I love that. While I sometimes have doubts, and things like our recent presidential debates fuel that doubt, I hold hope that we are capable of building bridges across party lines, finding common ground, and creating solutions that are supported broadly. And while we don't talk a lot about purpose directly, you can hear how Kevin finds this work essential in solving today's big problems that he cares deeply about. But before we dive into today's show, I want to give you an update about me. I haven't published a show in about nine months, and I wanted to explain why and how that relates to my purpose. The reason for that is simple. Focus. If you've ever read Greg McEwen's book titled Essentialism, he basically says that you can only do five things well. For me, one of those things at the top of my priority list and what makes my life meaningful is to take massive action to make climate change a non-issue for the next generation. That led me to take on a job search to put myself in a role where I felt like I could make a bigger impact, which I was able to successfully find, but couldn't have done without letting this podcast go during that time. That was actually really hard to do, to let something go in order to make an impact somewhere else. But once I made that decision, I haven't regretted it. I really enjoyed doing this episode, reading Kevin's book, hearing how it applies to current issues like COVID and equity, and taking a stab at applying it to my own life. So without further delay, let's get to today's interview with Kevin Wilhelm. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Kevin, can you start by just giving the audience a, a brief intro to yourself, you know, where you live and what you do now? Sure. Uh, so I'm the CEO of Sustainable Business Consulting, which is a business consultancy out in Seattle, Washington, where I live. We help organizations kind of realize business value from better social environmental practices. And um, I'm also the author of five books, including uh, one that we just published that I think we're going to be talking a lot about today called How to Talk to the Other Side, which is about finding common ground in a time of coronavirus, economic recession, and climate change. Awesome. Yes, I am very much looking forward to getting into your book. So you're in Seattle, Washington now, but as you described in your book, you grew up in a small town. How small are we talking and what was it like? We're talking about uh, 4,300 people, five stoplights. So pretty small. What was it like to grow up there? You know, it was, it's funny because it was, it was a great town to grow up in. As, a, as you got into your teenage years and in high school, you thought it was the most boring place on earth because it was, you know, it seemed like there was, quote unquote, nothing to do. But it was an awesome community. Everybody knew each other. But it's also, you know, home to um, Denison University and also 
Owens Corning and Dow Chemical both had the research facilities there. So it was this complete mix of a culture where you had 50% of the families there were farmers and rural, mm-hmm. super rural America. And then 50% mm-hmm. were like PhDs, you know, astrophysicists or, you know, college professors. So it was kind of a, a real mix of how we all came together as a small community. And on that note of, of coming together, I mean, you describe in your book that essentially there wasn't a lot of friction. I mean, people really saw themselves as a member of the community or the member of their you know state or country first. And the way in which we might see politics being as divisive as it is today wasn't the prominent feature of that small town. Yeah, and I think that's one of the, the, the things that I think has really changed about our society and culture was – yeah, I mean, it, it used to be even even as as recently as ten years ago. You know, you well, you first you were an American, and then you where you grew up was kind of your defining characteristic, and then maybe your religion, which high school you went to. So everyone just kind of got along. We were all all Americans. We were all from Granville, Ohio. Uh, we all had pride, and then you know, every four years, politics would enter into it in late October, November. But, but you know, and I, I had friends who were. Um, you know, staunch Republicans, kind of what you would describe now on the kind of the Trumpian conservative, as well as the kind of more country club conservative, business conservative. And then on the left, you had, you know, really liberal college professors, as well as, you know, kind of more mainstream Democrats. But um, people didn't identify themselves as Democratic Republican. You know, we, we weren't red state or blue state. We were just kind of, as you know, President Obama said, we were part of the United States. But recently, the reason, one of the reasons for writing this whole book is that we've become so mass siloed through social media, through our news sources, that we've allowed politics to become the defining characteristic of who we are and almost as a substitute for an entire value set. So, you know, I know people on the left who, if they see someone wearing a Make America Great Again hat, they immediately put all, they project all of their worst views and thoughts on someone of that stereotype. And I know that in certain parts of the country where I go to, if you're wearing a Joe Biden hat, people will throw all of their worst in fears on socialism and, you know, lack of, uh, you know, police and security and all that kind of stuff. And so it's unfortunately gotten there, but I, I feel like having those kind of hometown roots, that was one of the reasons for writing the book was how can we bring people back together and solve big problems? So let's, let's elaborate that uh, on that for a second. So, What's at stake? I mean, what's the worst that can happen if things continue the way that they do right now? Well, I think we're, we're realizing it. You know, when we were in high school, we read about world wars and the fact that we're about ready to lose. You know, we've lost more Americans in four months than World War One, the Vietnam War, the Korean War, Operation Desert Storm, our 20 years in Afghanistan and, and 13 years in, in you know, Iraq. For what? You know, so there's huge consequences. People are dying from the pandemic because things like wearing masks and believing science have become politicized. And so what's at stake? You know, the future of our planet, the, you know, our democracy, uh, people's daily lives, um, all because we've allowed ourselves to let this political partisanship kind of take over. I mean, there's and where we, you know, really felt the passion and the like, kind of the need to write this book was when the coronavirus hit here in the Seattle area, you know, I just kind of had this gut feeling 
that it was going to get politicized. I didn't know it would be about masks, but I knew it would break down to a left, right, or Republican, Democrat type of thing. And if we, if we hadn't allowed it, if we had just said, in what ways can we control the virus and keep people at work and keep kids in school? What can we do? And we would have come together. But quickly, it became a, you're either for masks or against masks. You're either for the economy opening or staying at home. You're either for kids in school or, or being online, you know. And how people tended to fall was they reverted to their tribalism that's been kind of created through this partisan political divide that we have in this country. That's a pretty strong motivation. That's a that's a pretty heavy motivation. Yeah. Uh, pretty negative consequences that are both happening now and could continue to accelerate as we move forward. So your book starts off by talking about ways in which people can start to build bridges. Mm-hmm. And you start with something really basic. Essentially, how do you, how do you build a connection with somebody you know, outside of politics on some right. sort of fundamental ways of coming together? Can you describe, you know, why do you start there? Why is it so important to build bridges that are outside of the realm of politics? Well, you know, it kind of goes back to basic conversation one-on-one. In the business world, whenever I'm going into a meeting, I want to know where someone's from or they've traveled somewhere recently. Because you can have a connection. You can have a way of kind of saying, ah, we're, we're kind of alike here. It softens the conversation. It's harder to take a really negative tone and anger at someone if you kind of already have, you know, a positive vibe going. And when I think about it, when I started even pitching this idea of the book to even members of my family, the immediate gut reaction was, well, how are you going to tell those idiots on the other side, you know, to to take this stuff seriously? And and my first comment was, you can't. You don't start that conversation. You don't show up at someone's Thanksgiving and then start telling them everything that they did wrong and what they need to do to change their life. You connect about family. You connect about your hobbies, the sports teams you root for, where you're from. You know, it's I, I liken it to dating. You know, when you're in high school or college, you didn't go to a party and go up to that guy or girl and say, like, here's who I am and here's everything about me and this is totally why I'm the right person. You first you listen, you got, you got close to them, you listened to what they were talking about, you found what's a way into this conversation. And when you start to do that, you can start having the connection. You know, if we start with that shared aspiration of we all want our, our kids to be happy and healthy, we, want, we want, don't want to get sick and die. You know, we want to be able to keep a job and be able to retire. We want a safe school and safe community. You start there where all the noise and all the disagreement is how, what's most important. And so I tried to really break the book down into getting back to those basic conversation points because it's actually quite simple. And it does take a little more time because you have to show interest in the other person as opposed to telling them why they should do something. And that's really where we need to make the change first and foremost. Yeah. I love your dating analogy. And I think what's funny is that as I was reading this, I was also thinking about the marriage analogy. If you got some issue that you need to talk about, if you start with like a, here's why you're wrong and here's why I'm right, the odds of that resulting in a positive outcome are, are almost zero. Whereas if you start with, a compliments, the odds of coming up to with a favorable outcome are, are much better. They hear you differently. And I liken it to, you know, I've been on a lot of uh, podcasts and a lot of talk shows with people on the right, and they're ready to just lay into me with a company named like Sustainable Business Consulting. And they assume I'm just some lefty, you know, uh, Seattleite. When I embrace, you know, 
them and let them know like, hey, I'm from a red state. I'm from rural America. I eat meat and potatoes, you know, uh, you know, and you can st- kind of start going, okay, let's, what other things, you know, I can talk football, I can talk hunting and guns, you know, I can talk all that stuff. And that's where you make the, the point of connection. And when you start to have that, then it opens up the conversation into kind of the more difficult conversations. But I think as a society, we've gotten so much in the point of like, we're rushed and we don't have time. And, you know, climate change is happening. So we just need to beat people over the head with facts. And they should just get it. I don't understand why they just don't get it. And it's the same way with voting. You know, everything's been proven that people vote on emotion, not on reason. And, you know, people vote against their own economic interests because there's an emotional component to it, not a, a rational component to it. And it's, and it's a bipartisan thing. I think on the left, they're always saying, oh, my God, you know, the Republicans, they don't understand. They're, they're, they're voting against their own self-interest because they're letting these social you know, issues like guns and abortion and immigration drive them into the party. It's no different. The left, you know, we vote against our own self-interest all the time. We ask to raise taxes. We ask to, you know, um, uh, tax more. And it's on both sides. And I say to people all the time, the people that hate Trump, what they're feeling is the same way that the people who hated Obama. And when you talk to people about that, they'll say, what we're caring about is so different. You know, they should just get it. And it's like, no, their emotions were just as high. Their reasons may have been different, but their feeling was the exact same. And so you have to recognize that and you have to start there. You can't go, well, I'm right. I sh- I'm right to be angry. And so it's the same way when I talk to people on the right, you know, and, and if I bring up Obama and they talk about all the different things that went bad in the country. And I say, do you do realize that people on the left are feeling the same way? And they're like, well, I can't believe they feel that way. And we just need to kind of get past that spot of, you know, bickering just about purely ideological political boundaries. Can you ground us in a couple of examples? Sure. I guess, let's, let's start with uh, an example of, of just building that bridge to start with. Is there a time when you were imagining coming up to somebody and you were going to have a very different opinion and you needed to, to break the ice? What did you do and say? Oh, yeah. So the Nature Conservancy in Kentucky was trying to work with a group to tear down an old dam on one of the canals that was there. And the, the dam was, you know, unsafe and was really blocking the ecosystem and fish passage. And for years, nonprofits have been coming in and having these community meetings and kind of telling the community why this dam needed to come down. And every time the community said no. So Nature Conservancy came in and listened and said, you know, why is this dam so important? What, you know, what, what is the reason you don't want to take the dam down? And they were finding that somebody would speak and their grandfather had worked on the dam or somebody's dad had worked on the dam. And they found out that there was a lot of cultural pride in what their parents did and that the community was kind of missing that pride because the dam had been shut down and was no longer safe. So the Nature Conservancy said, well, in what ways could we honor your parents and your grandparents? What, what would you like? What would be really cool? What would you want to take your kids to? And they said, you know, if we could build a small little museum and, you know, have a historical marker and we can have education sessions and tell them, you know, the importance of what this is and who the people were that worked here. Yes, then we can remove the dam. And so then the conversation became, well, if we remove the dam, what, you know, in addition to the fish, it could also open up economic opportunity. We could bring in outdoor recreation. We could bring in rafting. We could bring in all types of, um, you know, boating opportunities and ways to bring in money in the community that would actually help deliver jobs and economic development. 
And that became a win-win. But they, what they found was it had nothing to do with the dam. It was that they wanted grandpa and their dad to have like, you know, someone to care about them and to, to realize and recognize it. Once he heard about that, what the story was, the solution was quite simple. But you had to get past the politics. You had to get back past people being in their traditional silos and, and talking points to actually uncover that. So one of the things I'm hearing in that, Kevin, is that it takes this initiative of somebody to decide that they're not just going to press their issue, but they really have to understand why these other issues are so important to somebody else. So, you know, somebody from the Nature Conservancy had to go to this community and had to really deeply listen to understand those concerns. What's so hard about that and why aren't we doing that more now? I think so often is that people have think they have the solution in their head and they want to just get to the point you know our company does a lot of stakeholder engagement around sustainability and for years companies didn't want to do that they didn't want to spend you know months doing outreach and listening to the community because they felt like they already had the answer we have an example in the book where we one of our financial institutions that we worked with you know, for years had asked us to help them write their corporate social responsibility reports and do their carbon footprinting. And we just kept saying, you got to reach out and do some stakeholder engagement and find out what your stakeholders actually care about. And for years, they just were too busy. And sure enough, around five years into the process, they went out and they found that not a single one of their customers had ever read their corporate social responsibility reports. They were finding was that people assumed they were doing a lot more on the environment than they were because they had had put out these reports and they probably spent a million dollars, you know, working on the stuff over five years and gotten zero impact. And it's the same way in public life. You see, you know, a new mayor or city council member come in a local thing. They want to get that bridge built, that road built, that, that new project put in because they want to like have something they can say, look what I did. But they, for, instead of, you know, where you ask the question, Jeff, like, why is it so hard? It's because if you start the question differently and say, how can we do something that'll be successful for the long term instead of how can we get this done? It's a different question because when you ask how can we make sure this is successful and works for the long term for our community, then it leads to the community outreach where you find that information. So in our book, one of the examples we have is the American Prairie Reserve in Montana, where for years you had ranchers and farmers who were kind of pitted against the government environmentalists, you know, because the reintroduction of wolves or grizzlies you know, these ranchers were worried about what's going to happen to their um, to their livestock. And the traditional environmental response was, well, you know, these are endangered species. We have to bring them back for the ecosystems. And you know what? If, if your livestock gets killed, we'll reimburse you. When they started doing the deep listening sessions, the ranchers were like, of course, we're the ones who live on the land. We don't need some, you know, government official coming in from the big city telling us why we need to care about the environment. We're the ones who are out here. We are out here because we love the environment. But you don't understand, the burden of proof is on me. I have to take a photo of this piece of livestock that's killed. I have to upload it. Then I have to download this form and I have to handwrite it out in signature. Then I have to go somewhere and find and scan it and send it off by mail. And then four to six months later, I get a notice about when I might get paid if I even hear from it at all. And so really it was more of, they hated the bureaucracy and they, they felt like, they knew they wanted fairness. But they love the land. Right. And when you start hearing what it's about is they want to get rid of the, the process of it. 
the American Prairie Reserve said, well, let's put up some motion sensor cameras. And every time one of these endangered species walks across your land or, or kills one of your animals, the, a photo will be taken and will automatically send you a check. And so at the end of the month, how many ever photos you are, you just get money. And all of a sudden, the rancher's mindset shifted from, oh, I don't have to spend all that time. I can just concentrate on what I love doing. And oh, by the way, I might make more money. Oh my gosh, they, they, they started seeing the wildlife instead of as a nuisance, as an asset, as a financial asset, because they now had incentives to bring the animals back onto land as opposed to this big bureaucratic process that was hanging over their head. You know, Kevin, when I hear that story, I, I love it. It's an amazing solution. And one of the things that it seems like in just everyday life is that as people are coming across these issues, um, and, and they're they're thinking about starting dialogues, the sort of creativity that you can have in finding common ground when you deeply understand an issue is a lot different than if you understand an issue somewhat more superficially. Right. It's part of the problem that people are don't understand the issues well enough. And rather than than trying to really dig in and understand it more deeply and understand with curiosity, they just dig their heels into the tagline of, that their party is feeding them. It's that and... If you think you already know the answer, you're less willing to, to do some appreciative inquiry, you know. And again, it comes down to people are really more into wanting to tell people what to do rather than listening. It's like common sense. If you start with, nobody likes being told what to do. No one likes being yelled at. You start there and go, okay, so whatever we do, we shouldn't tell them what to do. We shouldn't yell at them. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> it's pretty simple. And, and, you, you, and the third thing is, find out where their anxiety is and where their true fear is. I really like that, Kevin. So let's take some of what you've got in this book and let's talk a little bit about some of these current issues sure. that are you know, facing our society. So let's start with COVID-19. What do you see as some of the the polarizing conversations you know, that are at play today? And how would you use your principles of finding gra- common ground in this context to see a solution happen? I mean, do you have any examples of... Um, you know, having conversations with people where you've been able to build a bridge and and turn the conversation around? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the, the same arguments that people are making about COVID-19 are the same that they make about guns or about climate change. You know, it's freedom, liberty, you know, individualism. And so, you know, I, I wrote a blog about this about three weeks ago that I was in a, a Target store and it was very clear here in Washington state. They've signs everywhere that says, you know, you must wear a mask to come in. And there was a guy walking around not wearing a mask and people, you know, very Seattle, very polite, passive aggressive, not saying much. or just kind of like murmuring on themselves. And he gets the checkout counter and he's in a full on argument with a couple of the customers and the checker about wearing a mask. And he's getting pissed off and they're getting, you know, really angry too. He was a white male and the, the, the those were primarily minority women. And so I kind of stepped in between them with my shopping cart and just said, hey, can I, can I just calm everyone's blood pressure down here for just a second? Let's just get this guy checked out and out of here. And, you know, that's all anyone wanted was to get him out of there. But I looked at the guy and he was wearing a, you know, a Washington State Cougars hat and was wearing a Seattle Seahawks sweatshirt. And so... He said, thanks. And I said, yeah, doesn't it suck getting yelled at? He said, yeah. And I was like, oh, man, you know, I remember 
I can't tell you how many times I've been on the wrong side of a quote unquote issue. And, you know, it's really just uncomfortable, isn't it? Yeah. He said, yeah. So I, I had paid for my stuff in the self-checkout and kind of walked him out. So let me walk out with this and no one else, you know, bugs you. Of course, the whole time I wanted to put a mask on, I had one on and could not believe that he wasn't doing it. But I knew that by attacking him directly, that wasn't going to work. So we get out to the parking lot and I said, Hey, are you a cougar? And he says, Oh yeah. And I, and start talking about football. And I said, what about the Hawks? You know, do they need to sign Jadavian Clowney? And we get going about football and really in depth. And, and uh, he goes, you know, my biggest worry is, you know, my kid's a high school senior and he, you know, he's not gonna be able to have a football season if this COVID thing doesn't, you know, get, get fixed. And I, that was like, aha, here's the opening football, his kid. And I just said, yeah, you know what? I mean, I mean, we all get, I mean, that's one reason why I'm wearing the mask. I mean, you can tell I'm a huge football fan, like there's not gonna be a football season if we don't wear masks. We got to make sure that school happens so that there's a football season. And you could just see the guy immediately kind of question me, but then the light bulb kind of went off like, oh, okay, I'm, I want football. If I want football, I need to wear a mask. I need to wear, make sure everyone else is wearing a mask. And it was like the most mundane, stupid reason that you could do it. I mean, obviously, there's the public health concerns, there's the economic concerns, there's the social justice concerns, but he's not going to be engaged on that. He doesn't give two rats about that. He, what he cared about was someone who wanted to talk to him about football and someone who would get people to stop yelling at him. And so I went back in because I, I took my card in and I went back in and apologized and I told the cashier what I was doing. I said, hey, I just wanted to get that guy out of here just as much as you. Don't think that I was on his side by any means. And she said, oh, I get one of those a day. And I said, try and engage them on whatever their, whatever sweatshirt or hat they're wearing and, and just say, you know, hey, if without that, we're not going to have football. And she's like, I don't care about football. I'm like, I know all of these people who are wearing masks, or excuse me, that aren't wearing masks, are pretty much white men. And they either care about guns or they care about politics or they care about football and uh, and talk to them about what they care about. That That's a kind of a, a mundane example. And my staff, of course, is like, I can't believe you're trying to solve everything with football. And I'm like, I'm not. I'm trying to solve a public health crisis that can get our kids back in school and reopen the economy. But some people you need to talk to about football. Right. That is a great example, Kevin. I mean, I, I admire you for, for being willing to do that. I think it's really difficult for most people to decide that they're going to intervene in, a, in an argument, let alone, you know, one that's pretty inflammatory. And, and you know, you, you never know what that guy's reaction is going to be, right? Totally. And like I pass a lot of um, small business owners as I walk to work every day. And what I tell them is I'm like, I want your bar open too. I want to go back to your bar. I want to be able to have, I want to see people streaming out of your bar. I know how much you've put time and energy and your life savings into it. And when you embrace them on that, as opposed to, hey, you got to require everyone to wear masks. And the person's like, well, damn it, I don't want to do that because the customers want to drink beer. Say, okay, so let's start with how can we get the customers to drink beer? And how can we make sure we get as many of them in as possible? Well, let's make this like, the most COVID safe bar in all of West Seattle and, and make it work. And I think it's a, just a totally different way of having them hear what you're trying to get at, but you can't get there by going, God, you know, you just need to enforce this. You, you gotta, you gotta start with like, he's worried about, he's invested his life savings in his business and he's going to go bankrupt. You got to embrace him there when you're talking about masks. You can't start with masks. There's so much else happening right now, in addition to COVID-19 around allyship and, and race relations. Now, I'm imagining somebody who, who wants to have a conversation with the other side about something like defund the police or the justification of rioting and vandalism. 
How would you apply the, the principles in that situation? Well, I think, um, you know, we wrote the chapter about allyship and obviously the book came out before Brianna Taylor and George Floyd, you know, hit. But all along, I was feeling like there's so many ways that you can be an ally um, to people in the movement without taking over the movement. And I think one of the things that I've known throughout my entire business career is that people are somewhat afraid to bring up like the tough issue. They don't want to talk about climate. They don't want to talk about diversity and equity. And I always found that if the people across from me looked like me, it allows me to bring up the questions of gender pay and inclusion and diversity. The more that, you know, you can use your position of privilege to help people rise, um, I think it's incredibly important. And that's one of the areas that my business, you know, has done. You know, we will have a conversation with a, a large Fortune 1000 in the retailer and they'll say, yeah, we, we've got a diversity policy. And I said, that's great in 1990. What we need is you need to have an actual plan and you need to have actual accountability. And what are you going to do to, in, to increase your inclusiveness, to increase your, your equity, not just your quality, but your equity within you know, the organization? And they immediately start throwing all these different reasons at you. And you have to keep saying, wait, but I thought we were talking, you wanted to solve this issue, not just pay lip service to it. And by being able to use my position to kind of hit executives on those issues in the same way I would say to them, well, it's just like if you were, you know, your economic performance was down 50% and you said we had to cover me to be profitable. You wouldn't be just like letting people get by with lip service. You'd be like, what are we going to do to get profitable? I want to see the plan. I'm going to hold people accountable and this is what we're going to do. And so by talking to them kind of in their language, it, it softens it and opens up the conversations. And I, I feel like allyship is incredibly important because a lot of times it's just we need to be we need to open the conversation, sit back and let the people who traditionally don't have a, a seat at the table or don't have their voice get represented. Um, and we have to be willing to to fight for them for that space. Yeah. So, Kevin, the other day, someone I know closely gave me this uh, article that was sort of a, a scathing article of the economic fallout caused by Democratic governors that have unnecessarily closed down places, as well as a combination of the like the criminal looting and vandalism as a result of the protests coming out of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. So when I, I read this article, you know, and I had so many experiences all at the same time, my own concern about the arguments and given the facts that I see around COVID-19 inequity, my experience of my love for the person who gave me this article and my desire to connect with them and not have this article divide us. I also had this interesting experience of almost like a peer pressure to be morally outraged and unwilling to concede any part of the narrative of, from my side. And then therefore, this kind of this paralysis of where to start. If I'm going to really engage with the person, I have to do real work. I have to be more knowledgeable. I have to put myself in a position where I might be feeling big emotions, where they might be feeling big emotions, where my, you know, in, in telling a story to my friend about an encounter, I, I might experience their big emotions about what I should or shouldn't have done or said. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, how would you help me put this all in context and figure out what I should do? You know, Jeff, you're no different than all of us. Um, I would say the 
the first 300 readers that responded to me about the book were all like, oh, this would be great. I can use it with my family at Thanksgiving, or I can talk to that friend who I always disagree with, or I can, you know, my uncle who is way on the Rachel Maddow MSNBC or the, you know, Fox News side, I can now like have some ammunition to, to talk to them. And I'm saying it's not ammunition. It's kind of technique. The thing with the guy at Target, it hit me at the most guttural level. I'm like, you're potentially infecting me, which could go to my kid. And I want to take these scissors and just stab you right now on the Achilles. But that wasn't going to accomplish what I needed, you know? So that was truly how I felt. And I had to process, okay, that's not going to work. So, oh, I'll talk to him about football. Um, you, the thing that you sent out or the article that came to you about how the Democratic governors had destroyed the economy or whatever, if the comment is, well, look what these governors did, they shut it down and it, it, it caused the economy to crash. You say, yes, it did. I hear you. And then stop. They expect you to argue for a thousand, you know, and push back on it. And the reality is, yes, the Democratic governors did close down the economy. Now, why they did it was so that we could hopefully only be in this process for a month or two, as opposed to what it's going to look like for a year. And if you frame it of, well, which would you rather have? Would you rather have, you know, would you rather take your medicine once and get over it? Or are you going to want to have to like keep taking your medicine every three months and having open, close, open, close and uncertainty? Can my kids go back to school or not? You know, am my job going to be there or not? Am I going to be furloughed or, or what's going to happen? If you frame it differently in terms of, it, you know, which in which ways would you want it to be? And then you can show them the facts of, OK, you know, South Korea, they had 12 cases and one death in the last month. And the United States were having a thousand die every single day. So what are we doing differently that they're doing? And really, you can, where you can find the common ground is the, the whole idea of, of shutting down was to allow time to stop the spread so that testing and contact tracing could be put into place and all the systems and PPE and all these things could be put into place so that when you did reopen, things were there. But we never got to that level. And so without having effective testing, without having effective contract tracing, that's what's, you know, causing these spikes and ups, downs and ups, downs. And so you can almost agree with them, but you have to kind of, you know, like you said, when they when they first start that question, you have that guttural, like, you know, you got to bring it on there. Go, OK, where in this argument is there actually some fact that I could agree with them and just start by agreeing with them and then shut up? and see what they do and see what they have to say. And then that opens up the conversation in a totally different way. Yeah. Um, I, I like that. And I, I think I can uh, give that a go. I'm going to see this person again sometime soon in the next week. And so I'll have a chance to trial that out. Yeah. It's, I mean, but I got to say it is, it's so tough because your, your gut and your instinct and your pride and your empathy, like all can get really hurt. And if you kind of just have to like put that on the side, you know, it's kind of, I, I like to describe it. It's like when a kid is having a temper tantrum and they're saying the nastiest things about you, you know, you kind of feel like, okay, I'm just going to let it go. Okay. Yep. I'll go sit in the other room and just let you smash stuff. And then when, when they're done smashing stuff and calling you names, then you can come back and have a conversation with them. And I think, I mean, I use this example with pretty much everyone and everyone goes, yeah, of course. And I'm like, yeah, so so why as adults, when people are like so riled up and ready to go and are super angry, is that why are you trying to like hit them with your counter argument right then? Because 
they're not going to do it. They're in their temper tantrum mode. They're not willing to listen right now. All they're right. doing is uh-huh. they're, they're waiting to shoot back your ideas. If you go to them, be like, oh, man, yeah, tell me about it. It sounds like times are really rough for you. What's going on? Tell me, you know, tell me, tell me, tell me. And they, yeah. they let it out. And then finally, they, oh, thanks, someone finally talked to me. Then you can go back with, you know, what your side is or what your counterargument is. But you can't do it directly. But we've just, no one thinks like that. We're all like, oh, well, they're yelling, so I got to yell too. And, and it just accomplishes nothing. Yeah. That's, that seems like, um, you know, again, I go back to the marriage idea. This, yeah. this is the same thing, you know, whether you're, whether it's parenting or whether it's being a good partner, it's, it's not trying to engage somebody when they're not ready to have a calm conversation. Right. Yeah. It's like, do you want to, do you want to bring up your plans for life in the next 50 years when you're, when your spouse is really stressed or really tired and wants to just go to bed? No, that's not when you do it. And it's the same way. I think the other thing like about arguments, and I think this has been one of the problems with politics for a long time is it really started with kind of the Newt Gingrich in the, in the mid to late nineties, but, and the Democrats are in the same way. The left is just as bad on this as the right is that this idea that you have to, they have to have like this pureness. They have this like this whole, they have to hit, check all the boxes. And it's like, if you're in a relationship with someone, do you ever get a hundred percent of what you want? No. For it to be healthy, there has to be give and take. And that's what, it's, it's no different in politics or any of these issues. There has to be give and take. Sometimes you're going to win. Sometimes you're going to lose. Sometimes you, you might win for the, in the short term or the long term, but you have to give and take. And, um, and, and instead, we've all gotten this mindset of like, I must win, you know, and I must win 100% or nothing at all. And as opposed to like, let me crack open the door. And if I can just get a little cracked, then maybe next time I can open it a little bit longer. And just people don't have the, the time or patience to do that right now. Yeah. When you set out to write this book, what did you imagine somebody picking up and reading it? Like, What were you hoping that they would get out of it? Well, the hilarious thing, Jeff, was this book had been kind of rattling around in my head since about this time last year. And, um, you know, when Natalie and I started doing research on it, it was a completely different book, you know, but we were, we were worried about actually worried about the Chinese tariffs taking down the economy. That was, that was the issue. Like, oh my God, yeah. you know, we're already super politicized. What if there's another recession, not a depression and certainly not a pandemic. But when, when we got into February, kind of it, it, it became like, this was, this wasn't just a passion project. This was a mission. This had to, you know, my, I was like, there has to be someone who puts forward a positive path forward. There's going to be a gazillion books written on either side, you know, about, you know, why Trump's bad or why Trump's good and who, who should win or who lose. But who's going to, like, stand firmly in the middle and take arrows from both sides and be able to say, OK, yeah, but let's give you a little bit and let's give you a little bit, because if we don't, we're not going to move forward. And, you know, I was just thinking about, you know, for, you know, personally and for our company, we've been, we've been carbon neutral since 2006. We've been carbon negative for three years. We 100% believe in climate change and that it needs to be addressed. And it's a top priority in the world. And I realized that when you go to talk to rural America and I go back to Ohio and I talk about climate change, um, it's not anywhere in their top 50 priorities, but there are certain things that are, you know, the, um, and when you start, finding those ways that extreme weather events or um, jobs or pollution or opportunities for the kids or energy prices, 
um, those open doors to have the conversation on climate change. And so, you know, I'm from a, a small rural town and, and, you know, the family farmers were getting killed by the Chinese tariffs before the pandemic and the pandemic, you know, they're getting absolutely wiped out because the costs of, well, commodity prices are down, but the cost of putting in all the PPE and everything like that to take care of the workers just is, you know, a, a much greater cost and the market hasn't mm-hmm. really been willing to pay for it. And they're all worried about protecting their family farm. And so when you start with, okay, they're worried about protecting the family farm and they want to be able to pass this down from generations. In what ways could they find a stable income? Ah, you know, if they put a wind turbine on their property, for every turbine they put on, they get about $7,500 annually per turbine. So if you put five, 10 of these on um, on your land, that might be more than your entire profitability on a good year as a farmer. And so that means that they have a base level of income, a ba- you know, can reduce their economic anxiety, um, and they can still do the farming and love that they want to do and be able to pass down the farm to their next generation. That's the kind of strategy we need to bring to climate change and issues like that, you know, with rural America. Like, this is what you want solved, and this is a, a proactive way of doing it as opposed to coming to them and saying, you know, you, know, you all need to clean your act up. You know, I mean, that just doesn't work. Right. So you imagine uh, this book, but and by sharing these stories of how people can come together, that there's just going to be a lot more creativity, that we're going to be able to see the commonality in our in our struggles and come up with solutions that are better than when we're thinking in isolation. Absolutely. We need the creative solutions, which is the meat of the book. We need to find the common ground, the beginning part of the book to understand how to actually like find to open up the door to have the conversation. And we need the techniques that the, in the last chapter of the book about how to actually have a difficult conversation again, because we've all gotten away from it. It's a lot easier to sit on Facebook and just hit likes and then rail against somebody than it is to, like you're saying, talk to your buddy who you disagree with or talk to my, you know, someone in my family that I disagree with, you know, that sends me articles that I feel like are massive conspiracy things to really do it. Just like anything in life, it takes time and energy. Yeah. You started off this book with a dedication to your son. Imagine your son in 20 years, if people are actually taking this advice to heart, what is your biggest hope and dream for what the future might look like? I would love for us to not be seen as one side or the other, but, you know, a return to, you know, we're Americans. I mean, you know, my hope, you know, and this may sound like a, a patriotic, you know, fight song that I'm about to do, but you know, when we were growing up, America was deemed as the greatest country in the world. And now we're definitely not. We're behind in every category. And how we've handled this pandemic has just thrown it to the fire and what we're doing. In order to regain that, we have to start internally. We got to start um, getting back to a place where we can solve big problems, where we can have it not be I win when you lose, but we win together. Or, I win when you win. Um it's going to enable a, a, a lot of progress to happen and not just in the kind of economic or environmental section, but, you know, it's just even in the, um, the social justice movement. I mean, I grew up in a town where it was, it was pretty much all white. We had one black family, one Asian family, one Indian family out of the, I mean, I'm talking one, I'm not talking like 1%, one. And, you know, I can only imagine what it was like growing up for them, you know, in that, in that space. And if we can get to a spot where, you know, everyone in the community would understand kind of what it's like for them and how to, how to reach out to them and how to be better allies and how to be more empathetic and culturally aware. 
you know, that would be a great society to live in. And that, that, that's kind of what I'm hoping with this book, that to kind of start laying the groundwork so we can get there for not only 20 years from now with my son, but even just five years from now when we need to solve some of these bigger environmental, financial, economic problems that are right in front of us. Yeah. Last question for you. If, if somebody wants to be, you know, an activist in the same way that you were in that Target store and that story that you told, what advice would you have for them to overcome their fears or, or what would they need to do to, to be ready to have that conversation? To be ready is the important thing. Everyone's like, how did you just like think of it on the, on the cuff? And I was like, I didn't just think of it on the cuff. For years, I've been like, when I see someone in any situation, whether I'm moving into a, you know, a business meeting or anything, you, you read the room, you read, you know, what are they wearing? What, you know, if they go into a, uh, a new client, what, what are the photos of their family look like? What do they have on their walls? You know, what art do they have? Um, you know, what, what ways can you find that commonality? And so to help someone kind of prepare for that difficult conversation like I have with, with Target, it's A, you have to learn to be aware as to kind of what that person cares about. B, you got to start with what they're getting most upset about. And in that case, he was getting, he was feeling like his rights were being infringed, even though it clearly said, you know, I mean, he was, he was wearing shoes and he was wearing a shirt. So it said, you know, no shoes, no shirt, no service, but it also had masks on there, but he didn't have a problem with the other two. And I think the other thing is it is difficult and now, especially with so many people carrying guns and the anger being so, you know, pent up that sometimes you have to be willing to kind of take a risk. And in that case, um, you know, I'm, I'm a smaller guy. I, if this guy had gone after me, I would have gotten beat up pretty bad. But I also felt like I needed to stand up for the woman there. And I, and I kind of had that thought in myself of like, if I went home to tell the story to my wife or to my kid and say, you know, I saw this young minority woman who's just doing their job, just getting absolutely berated by a big guy bullying her, and I just sat there. What would I be feeling as opposed to saying, mm-hmm. hey, you know, I threw myself in kind of this difficult situation. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I really tried to, to, you know, to help kind of move the needle on this. And there was a sense of pride in that. And I think that that's kind of where you need to come from is how can I prepare myself with these kind of conversations? Where can I be an ally? And where can I stand in for someone? And just sometimes you just have to say, hey, we don't need that language here now, right, buddy? Or, hey, can you keep it down? Or, can you just pay and go? You know, just, you know, something like that that just kind of lowers the, you know, the whole tone. And when we get caught in our, our, our talking points that the politicians and our social media have gotten to us, we're not listening to one another. And we really need to do that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it sounds like, Kevin, you know, for that particular instance, I mean, you, you've written the book on this and yeah. <laughs> you've spent years practicing. And so that that specific intervention might not be right for everybody, but they can start to to practice this in smaller, less risky ways you yeah. know, at that business meeting um, with a with a colleague, somebody who they trust with their family, with your family. If you start there, that's the safest place, because at least you have a grounding of family. Um, and if you can start there and learn the techniques in that, which is a safe spot, I mean, it's safer than most others, then you'll, you'll gain the kind of muscle memory and the practice for how to do it in other places. Well, Kevin, really appreciate the interview. Is there anything else, that, any parting advice or thoughts that you'd like to leave the audience? No, but I think for the audience, if they, uh, you know, they want more information, uh, you can find our book on Amazon. It's called How to Talk to the Other Side. 
Uh, or you can go to our, our company's website at sustainablebizconsulting.com. So that's sustainablebizconsulting.com. And we have not only information about the book, but lots of other tips and resources to help people uh, in this fight. Thanks for listening to Ignited with Meaning and my interview with Kevin Wilhelm, co-author of Talking to the Other Side. Since my interview with Kevin, I had a chance to have a conversation with my friend from the other side about COVID-19 and the protests for racial equity. And it went fine. Like, not bad for a first try. Nothing went wrong. I did try some of Kevin's suggestions, like really agreeing and then pausing. And then also share some other points about how I see things differently at which point the conversation sort of changed subjects. And so that one conversation wasn't amazingly satisfying, but it also didn't erode the relationship, and I got a chance to exercise my reaching across the aisle muscle. And as I think on it, I don't think we can expect to have an experience like Kevin did every time we go to the grocery store. Like you said, it, it takes practice. But when I think about the theme of this podcast, about doing things that are meaningful, The truth is that they can be hard. If we really want to change the tone of the American political dialogue and really start working together, we can't just wish that it would change. We have to take actions that would result in the world we want to see. And that will inevitably push us out of our comfort zone sometimes. I was out of my comfort zone with my friend, but I can also see how if I did that enough, it would feel more natural and could even be kind of fun. So I encourage you to try it. Try reaching across the aisle. Just start by imagining the civil dialogue you'd like our leaders to have, and if they can't do it, let's do it ourselves. On a separate note, I wanted to close by saying that this is the last episode of Igniting with Meaning that I'll be doing for a while. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I'm really trying to focus my time. And over the coming months, and potentially much longer, I hope to write a book on climate change. I've never written a book before, I think it's going to be hard and I'm going to have to push myself outside of my comfort zone and have to learn new things to get it done. But at the same time, it's meaningful to me. I love learning and enjoy writing and have a story to tell. So thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. And I hope that this podcast has helped you to learn something about meaning and inspired you in some way to take action on living the meaningful life you want. Until next time, farewell.